You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. Well, let's pray this morning. God, um, I'm, I'm spent and I'm tired and I don't even know that I'll be able to get words clear sometimes today. But I hope that in my weakness that you promise in your word that when we are weak, you are strong. And so I'm going to lean into that promise today that you will be strong. Um, Frankly, this message isn't really necessarily the message that I need. I need like a message about hope and comfort. And today this is a message about mission. So I don't know what you have for me and us in that, but Lord, meet us and speak to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Comedian, Jim Gaffigan. I know there's some fans because some of our people in this church went to go see him this last summer. Comedian Jim Gaffigan in one of his stand-up comedy specials, he has this take where he says, "Uh, I do like making people feel as comfortable as possible, and that is why I want to start talking to you about Jesus. And then what he does is, and you've seen his routine, then he starts to take on the voice of his audience and then speaks as if he's the audience. And then he says, uh, he better not. And I always laugh at that. And then he goes on after he does the audience re- result of, hey, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. You better not. Then he says this. He says, it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than when someone says, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus? <laughs> And I laugh because he's right. I mean, comedians sometimes just get it more right than pastors. Um, it perfectly summarizes the discomfort that comes from bringing up and talking openly about Jesus. And I will admit to you, and you're like, really? You're a pastor, aren't you? This isn't what your gig is, talking about Jesus openly all the time. But yeah, but when there are certain people in my life that that's not what their life is about, I can find myself feeling discomfort bringing up Jesus. And I'm sure the other person is feeling the discomfort because they're thinking in their mind what Jim Gaffigan says, uh, you better not. <laughs> and so I admit to the discomfort, but here's another interesting thing. You, you might be interested to know this. I also admit to, uh, that I find myself puzzled at my discomfort. Like I'm discomfort, I have the discomfort, but I'm puzzled at it. And what I mean by that is, um, I feel discomfort about my discomfort when I know, and not only do I know, but I am deeply grateful that my mom and dad got over their discomfort to share Jesus with me. And somebody in their life got over their discomfort to share their story with Amy Lewis, my mom, and Roger Lewis, my dad, so they could come to faith. And a whole bunch of someone's going back 2,000 years got over their discomfort going all the way back to the first disciples who heard Jesus pray this prayer that we're studying that led all the way to me getting to hear about Jesus. And so when I have the discomfort, I'm puzzled because I, that, that's the story behind it. Uh, I'm puzzled by my discomfort when I do find myself talking openly. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, this is fun. And I, I'm talking openly about Jesus, about my faith and my love for him. And I'm so alive in the conversation. I also find myself puzzled by the discomfort when I have felt and experienced the deep pleasure 
of helping someone come to faith in Jesus Christ and be like, man, I, wow. And to feel that. So what I'm, I, I admit I have discomfort and at the same time, I have, I'm simultaneously puzzled as to why are you, why are you so uncomfortable? Well, where I'm going with that is I know I'm not alone, that the discomfort in the internal puzzlement, it's something I think is pretty common for, for all of us as believers. Cause when it comes to this thing that's called evangelism, um, you know, what, it, what call it what you want, sharing your faith, uh, spreading the good news, sharing the gospel, whatever term you want to call it. When it comes to evangelism, all of us, we often have discomfort and some puzzlement about our discomfort. And what we try to do with that is we try to sort of negotiate that in a few ways. And let me just list some of the ones that just sort of came to my mind this week. One of the ways we negotiate it is we say, well, it's not normal to bring up an ancient dude like Jesus. You know, because like you think, you think in yourself like in the, in, nobody in the modern world quotes and lives and commits themselves to live by the teachings of ancient dudes. Like you don't hear people on the street go, can I talk to you about Aristotle? I'm following his teeth. So you just like, you like that. So it's not, so in one of the ways you negotiate the discomfort, you say, well, it's just not normal to talk about some ancient dude named Jesus. So I, that's just not what I'm going to do. Another one is you can say, well, it's not for the public where we think that our faith and our spirituality, it's a, it's a private thing. That needs to be kept in the privacy of our hearts. And so we just keep our faith privately to ourselves. That's one way that we negotiate it. Another one is we say, well, it's not my skill. You know, we think, we know that pastors, people like you, Andy, or evangelists, um, they've, they've trained themselves. You know, they spent years in seminary and grad school and stuff like that. They know the Greek and the Hebrew and stuff like that. And they, they figured out ways in which to talk about Jesus in a way that makes sense within the modern world. And you're like, well, I, I don't have that training. I, I didn't go to seminary. I don't, I, I know it is in Greek. Which one? The Old Testament or the New Testament? I, you know, but I don't have that training. I don't have that skill. So what we decide, we negotiate it. We say, well, what I'll do is I'll help them do their job. I'll give to their church. I'll encourage people to check out them talking about Jesus. And that's how we negotiate it. It's not my skill. Another one, and this is, this is much more current. This is only just like in the last five years it's come to my attention. We negotiate it by saying it's not loving. Barna Research, which does studies not only for Fortune 400 companies, but also they, they study the church. They're committed to that, and particularly in the West. They found in recent research that three out of five Christian millennials, so if you're from the millennial generation, this may be describing you, Millennials believe that people today are likely to take offense if they share their faith. In fact, the, the beliefs drill down so deeply in Christian millennials that they actually believe that they share faith in any way, whether it's Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever, that if you're sharing your faith, you're practicing hate speech. So millennial believers are starting to kind of buy this. And so, of course, if you, if you believe that, you're like, I'm, I'm not going there. So believers decide to steer clear. It's, it's not loving. I'm not going to do that. The final one that I would bring to your attention is, and this is a pretty common one, is to say, it's not my gift. It's not my gift. Years ago, 
um, we were setting up for some a ministry event. I think it was worship or something. And we were setting up chairs, and I had a, a ministry intern at the time. And I asked my ministry intern, hey, 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 can we set up chairs? And then I've got something else going on. And the ministry intern, got to give them huge credit. They kind of gathered themselves, had a great tone of voice, great presentation. And they said to me, um, Andy, this, this makes me kind of uncomfortable because my gift is the gift of apostleship. <laughs> yep. That's what I got told. Yep. Meaning, here's what that translates in. My spiritual gift is starting big movements of God. I have the gift of apostleship, which means I don't do chairs. <laughs> and I'm like, do the chairs. <laughs> But here's what happens is like that kind of mindset, I think is pretty collective. I mean, I get it because I, I will tell you right now, my spiritual gifting is not evangelism, which pastors don't always necessarily get that as their strong gift where the spirit shows up in power like that. But we all do the same thing with sharing our faith where it's like, well, it's not my gift. I'm not, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I just, I can't lead people to Christ on every plane flight I'm on. So I, I will let the people who have the gifts, I'll stand back and I'll let them do it. You see what I'm saying? It's like, we have the discomfort, we're puzzled by our discomfort and we find ways to try to negotiate it. So today we're continuing our new year series, these deathbed requests, because we know, and I know from personal experience, that if a person is able, whether it's leading up to their death or right on their deathbed, they tell us, this is what matters most to me when they're on their deathbed. And as Jesus faced the cross, Jesus didn't get to have a deathbed. Jesus had a cross. But as he faced the cross, he prayed this beautiful passionate prayer right in front of the remaining 11 disciples about his deathbed requests, what mattered the most to him for the people of God. And today we're going to hear Jesus pray for us as we are discomforted or uncomfortable. And as we puzzled at why we're uncomfortable when it comes to the issue of our mission, he prays for us. So let's look at what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays passionately about the mission of his collective group of disciples, a.k.a. the church. He, he prays for us. And it is moving for me to hear how Jesus prayed specifically for us. Like right here in this room right now. He's in this passage. He's praying for us. We are the people 2,000 plus years later who believe in and trust Jesus because God's spirit moved through those first disciples who heard him pray it for the first time. God's spirit moved through those first disciples who at first failed to move out to the degree Jesus asked them to. Just read the first chapters of the book of Acts. But then did actually ultimately get around and ultimately moved out to share his message. It is moving to me. Jesus has prayed for us here today that we hear it. And not only that, it's moving to me that Jesus prayed not just for us, but also for others. 
Those who are going to be reached by us, who, just like the first disciples, we have our struggles of moving out as asked, and who, I hope, will ultimately live lives as we grow with Jesus that can move out to share messages of salvation. That I hope for you, as I heard stories of my father, of people telling me, your dad led me to the Lord, your dad led my husband to the Lord, and to find things that I didn't even know about my father, then that is the trajectory of your life. Jesus prays not just for us, but also the others that us is going to reach. And here's a couple of things that stand out to me in this passage. First, this is this. I'll put it up on the screen. He prays, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Through the message. Underline that word message, because here's what I want to ask. What did Jesus mean in real time by the word message? What, did, what, what, what was, as we, if we can get close enough to it, what did Jesus mean in his mind as he prayed that word message in his prayer? Was Jesus talking about the four spiritual laws? If some of you may not know this, but like in the 50s and 60s, there was a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ who taught, they, they really simplified the gospel presentation in a booklet called the four spiritual laws. I remember the first one was like, um, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the second one was, but we've removed ourselves from God. And there was something about a bridge to Jesus. And it was very, it was good. And it was a simple, was that what he was talking about? Was Jesus talking about the ABC message of the gospel, which is something I've taught our people. So you can have some readiness of how to share your faith, which is a meaning to admit. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I think that's true. B to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the son of God who laid his life down on a cross and rose again, and C, to commit your life to follow him. Is it, is that, was, that he, was he thinking that? Was he thinking the believe and the receive message? Believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be and receive the life that he's offering you? Or was it the message of, just come to my church and my, my pastor will tell you about Jesus' message? Which, is that what, which, what is he talking about? Though some of what Jesus probably means by the word message, it can be found in some of these different ways that we can describe the good news. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. The actual word that Jesus used in the original language of the book of John, which is Greek, is the word logos or logos, however you want to pronounce it. I'll go with logos. There's a couple of interesting things happening with that word. One is when that used is when the word is used most simply and most often in the Greek language, the word logos means word, words. But here's another thing: it's a word that in the first century Greek philosophers, this was like the golden age of Greek philosophy at the same time at the time of Christ. The first century Greek philosophers took the word logos. And they turned it into this heading for this pursuit of, let me read it because it's kind of dense, to describe universal divine reason that can transcend all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and in humanity. An eternal, unchanging truth that's present from the time of creation and it's available to everyone who seeks it. So simultaneously in the time of Christ, you've got Greek philosophers going, the world is a mess. 
how can we sum up, there's got to be something out there, a universal divine reason that goes all the way back to creation. It's available to all people that can transcend all the oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and in humanity. And guess who hijacked that word in his book? John. In John chapter 1. If you remember in John chapter 1, in the beginning verses, John says, In the beginning was the word, logos, universal, divine, transcendent, all went back crazy. He's, he's using the word very much on purpose. In the beginning was the word, logos, and the word, logos, was with God, and the word was God. Jesus. So what John is getting at and what Jesus is praying at is logos is talking about divine Jesus. That transcends all opposition and imperfections in the world. And he's available to all through a revelation that's most often given through words. Lagos. So while I can't say exactly what Jesus was thinking, of course I can't do that. Run out of the doors if I tell you that. I, I can't tell you exactly that. I think what it means is... I think Jesus is understanding two things when he says this word. He says, I think he's saying, look, there's not just one way to share the gospel. In fact, you might be surprised to know this because we've been trained in the era of the ABCs and the four spiritual laws and all that, that actually, if you go through the original Testament, sometimes called the Old Testament and the New Testament, you might be surprised to know that the gospel message is described in a lot of different ways throughout scripture, the good news message. So I think what Jesus is saying is about this message is there's not just one way. So relax about that, that there's not just one magical incantation, incantation like Harry Potter that unlocks a person's soul. It's not how that works. But, he, but I also think he's saying to this, our mission is inextricably linked with, and I know this is going to make you cringe, words that we say. It's inextricably linked with words describing what we know about him. So that's the first thing that we see. The second thing that really stands out to me is where he says this, and we'll also put that on the screen. He says, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world will believe you sent me. See, in Jesus' mind, the words describing the reality of God's rescue, they're not limited in availability and accessibility to just these 11 disciples in the upper room celebrating Passover, which becomes communion, and then the Jews, and that's it. It's not limited in accessibility to just those few people. Though it started out very much being viewed that way after the resurrection of Jesus. Again, just read the first chapters of the book of Acts. The early church was like, isn't it just for us Jews? Isn't that what this is? And them having to figure out, wait a minute, what Jesus had in mind all along. It, in fact, this is a word that is available to the full diversity of nationalities and languages and tribes and temperaments and backgrounds and interests and socioeconomic backgrounds for everyone. And Jesus says he desires that this good news be spread with such collective unity that the world can arrive at the realization that though the world did not want God or desire God, that God still sent his own son to redeem the world. And so he prays for this collective message that goes out that showcases to the broken world system that wants nothing to do with God. 
that God wants everything to do with the world. That showcases to the world. You may not want to have anything to do with him, but he wants to have everything to do with you. And that this is a God who doesn't love you if, and doesn't love you when, but loves you just because that's who he is. And that's what he does. That showcases to the world in our collective unity of the message. But not just showcases to the world. Shows off to the authorities and the powers. Last week, my buddy Richard Goddard talked about Jesus' prayer protection from the enemy. It also is to showcase to the authorities and the powers Satan's horde of fallen angels. And do not kid yourself. They are the ones who make and move the gears of this broken world system. And it will showcase to them, and I'm borrowing from Paul in Colossians 2, that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them and the cross through a collective message of the good news of the gospel. Jesus, I want you to hear this. Jesus prays for us that we will carry forward a message about a man, the man named Jesus. And so the point is, and I know you're going to cringe when I put it up on the screen, because it just is what, what it is. Jesus wants us to tell the world God sent him to rescue us. Jesus wants us to tell the world there's a rescue available to all of us. And his name's Jesus. And I, I, what's interesting to me is, is like we, I, I do, we all do. I'm, I'm in this too. I'm not pointing fingers, believe me. We try to negotiate some sort of settled peace in our hearts about our discomfort about this, our nervousness. But Jesus doesn't negotiate a compromise for our discomfort and our puzzlement in sharing the good news. What he does do is he prays for us. I love that. He prays for us. He's telling us by praying for us that he, he compassionately gets that we're discomforted. It's uncomfortable that there's a reluctance. There's an anxiety that the first century disciples, the first disciples, and that we would have. By praying for us, you're understanding that Jesus gets with compassion. I get it. It's going to make you anxious. And he was going to know in advance all of that. Well, it's not normal, and it's not for the public, and it's not my skill, and it's not loving, and it's not my gift. All the ways that we would try to negotiate some sort of internal peace settlement for ourselves about the issue. And yet, he prays that God would help us move past some negotiated settlement in our hearts that leave us silent and empower us to tell the world. That's what he's praying I love that our Savior is praying that for us because I, I know I need it. In his book, uh, Center Church, Pastor Timothy Keller, he writes this observation, which I'll put up on the screen. He says, the gospel is a message. Underline that word. It involves words, right? It's a message about how we have been rescued from peril. It is not primarily a way of life. It's not something we do but something that has been done for us and something that we must respond to upon hearing about it. 
And of course, you read that, right? And of course, all of us want these supposed uh, words from St. Augustine to be true. And believe me, I spent years, even as a pastor, going, this is the way I want to live this. The supposed words, which I found out years later, he never said it by most scholars, is the words, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. And I was like, okay, that's my, I'll do that. Of course, right? All of us would be like, yes, I want to do it that way. But here's, I mean, just think that through for a second. In the same way that people who are trying to get over to 17 in the fastest route would never read my very kind and humble nonverbal cues. <laughs> right? They would never read from my kind and humble loving even verbal, nonverbal cues that the best way to get to San Jose is to take Highway 17 when there's not a mudslide on it. I'd have to, I have to tell them with words that that's the directions, right? And so it's the same thing. People can't read our minds and just our nonverbal cues about the goodest of good news. God has given you and me, every one of us, an oikos, which is the Greek word for household, now, that, for some of us, that literally means your household, your children, and your grandchildren. But it also not only means that, it means wider beyond that, a sphere of influence. I have a sphere of influence you will never have and will never be repeated in the universe. And you have a sphere of influence I will never touch, never be, even be able to, just because of the fact I'm a pastor. They will not talk to me. But you do. So you have one that I don't have, and I have one that you don't have, and we all have these spheres of influence in which Jesus has prayed for us, and the Holy Spirit is groaning for us before the Father that somehow in our own authentic voice, we can describe with words, God sent Jesus to rescue us somehow. So let's talk about practicalities. I honestly, I still don't want to read this quote, but... um, Dang it, Holy Spirit. Um, I don't want to read it first because it makes me uncomfortable and because I know it's going to make you uncomfortable in reading it, which always runs the risk, right, when you make God's people uncomfortable of pushing God's people into a guilt-shame spiral that's not helpful. But I do feel like I just, I've been very prompted by the Spirit. I need to read it. So this comes from the 17th century believer in Jesus, philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard, And he wrote this long ago. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Ouch, and I'm sorry. But he's right. He's really right. We are good at being what he calls scheming swindlers about a lot of things, about God's desires for our human sexuality, um, how we use our power in the world, how we use the money that he has poured out into our laps, whether we live our lives as consumers versus investors in the kingdom of God how we do spiritual disciplines, how we engage Jesus. I mean, the, the list good can go on, but that's not the list I'm talking about. Where I want to go is that nowhere are we all, and I definitely include myself, more ready to pretend 
To be unable to understand, because we know the minute we understand we're obliged to act accordingly, is when it comes to the issue of telling the world that Jesus has come to rescue us. What, what was that? What was that in the Greek? Maybe I misunderstood it. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus wants us. He's prayed for us that we would tell the world that God sent him to rescue us. And the application's kind of obvious. It's share the news. I know it's hard. I get it. It's hard for me. But share the news. Now, in saying that and in looking at that, here's the discipline. And all of them, I'm asking you to please discipline your, your heart and soul right in this moment. Please steer away from the guilt reactions from that. It's not going to do you any good. Just stop. Stop it right now. Steer from the guilt reactions that'll push you into a useless shame spiral. Oh, once again, I suck. Jesus, I'm sorry. You know, don't do that. Steer into a grace responsiveness to the fact that Jesus is praying for you. There's a grace in that. Steer into that. Jesus prays for us that we will share the good news about him. Now, let's start with what that does not mean. It does not mean that you should feel guilty for every plane flight you went on that the person next to you did not hear you talk about Jesus. It doesn't mean you need to feel guilty about that. It also does not mean that a plate of Christmas cookies for your neighbors is enough information for them to know, oh, Jesus came to rescue me. It does not mean that God is holding you accountable for their eternal destiny. God is not holding you accountable for their eternal destiny because the scriptures are very, very clear that only God's Holy Spirit can convict somebody that they're a sinner and convince them of the crazy message of the gospel that it's actually true. So it does not mean that God's holding you accountable for their eternal destiny. It does not mean that God expects you to be Billy Graham or some other person that you look at. And they do have some gifts of evangelism. And it just so flows so naturally for them. And it's not that for you. It doesn't mean that God expects you to be them. He wants you to be you. So let's talk about what sharing the good news of Jesus can mean. And I'm just going to give you just some things that I'm working on. It's not the technique side of it, like you know, four spiritual laws or ABCs or stuff. It's more like the internal stuff for me. So this is stuff I'm just sharing with you how I'm trying to live it. The first one is just pray. Just pray for people. You have a sphere of influence in your life. Kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces, I mean, and as well as like neighbors and friends, you have a sphere that Jesus has placed you into. It's never going to be repeated again in the universe, ever. Pray for these others as Jesus has prayed for us. And if nothing else, just, just pray for the people in your oikos. Some of us here in this room are list makers in our prayers. And man, good on you for that. And a lot of us are like, eh, I don't do that. Well, you're not counted out because I do know this. You're a human being and your brain does flash as you think about people. You can at least start when you think about them, also pray a prayer for them. When you think about them. So I'm not asking you to be a list person. You don't have to change who you are. But just pray for them. The other one that I'm, I've, I'm, I'm trying to always be, be faithful to is be ready. Have some readiness. I don't think a good message for the gospel is, uh, 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 come to my church. 
You can do that if you want, but if somebody is like, this is an opening for you, describe Jesus. Have some way. Peter, one of the 11 who was there when Jesus prayed this prayer, in 1 Peter 3.15, he says this, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. So, just have some kind of readiness that's in your authentic voice to describe how would you describe your hope? And, and by the way, when, when I'm talking about readiness too, don't put this pressure on yourself like you're selling a used car and you got to seal the deal. I'm not, that, no, you just tell them what you know. The third one that I'm continually working on is, is to improve congruence. And you're like, wait, how did you turn this into a math problem? Let me, let me explain what I mean by improving congruence. We, all of us, and it's natural to us, we very easily talk about the things that we're excited about. We talk about our spouse. We talk about our kids. We talk about our grandkids. We talk about technology. We talk about all these things all of the time. And Jesus, right? It's the Jim Gaffigan thing. Can I talk about Jesus? You better not, right? What I think is true for all of us is we can improve the congruence just watch yourself in the weeks ahead. Improve, improve congruence. Bring up Jesus. Bring up God as often, more often and as easily as you talk about your spouse and your kids. Now, how do you do that relates to the fourth thing I want to share with you, which is this. Share what fits the conversation. I once, it was in the early 90s, I was watching uh, the end of an NFL game, and Jim Harbaugh at the time was actually, a, he's, not, he's now the coach at the University of Michigan and was a 40, 49er coach and Stanford coach. And at that time, they were labeling him Captain Comeback. And I didn't know it. He, was Christ, he is a Christian. And he led the Indianapolis Colts from a big come-from-behind win. And the, I think it was NBC reporter found him in the tunnel and came up alongside of him and said, how do you feel about this win, Jim? And Jim robotically said, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for giving us this victory. And then ran off. And you're like, what? How is that? What? Who taught you that? He thought he was being faithful to it, but it had nothing to do with the conversation about this victory, this come from behind victory. What I'm getting at is, as you're improving congruence, sometimes we believers, we can awkwardly force Jesus where it just is not, it doesn't belong. But we, as we improve congruence, we can share what makes sense within the context of our actual conversation. Maybe you can just, here's, here's a big one I'm learning. Bring your brokenness out into the open. Bring your pain and your loss and your grief in light, life out in the open with people who don't know or believe and talk about how God is ministering to you and what you're learning. They will listen. And it, bring your humanity. Bring the things that God is teaching you about this, that, or the other thing and just throw it out there. See what happens. It's that kind of thing that we're talking about. Pray, be ready, try to improve the congruence and share what fits the conversation. And you could use the ABCs. You can use the four spiritual laws. You can use the Romans road. You can use the whatever. But I think these are the things that hit to the spirit of some practicalities within us. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And as they get set to lead us in worship, um, I want to kind of give some vision here, but I know it's going to start off really negative. By so many measures, statistically, the spread of the good news seems to have been silenced. Increasingly, it's being silenced. 
Less people are going to church, particularly in the western part of the, the earth. More people are choosing to become duns, not only done with church, but actually declare, I'm just done with Jesus. Uh, less young people know anything about church or Jesus or have any kind of faith background. Those are actually the statistics. And yet, through all of the haze of these statistics, that would lead most of us to just go, why are we even, do- why are we even trying? There are two pictures that keep me going, personally. The first picture is this. It's those really quiet, hidden places nobody's seeing. And it's happening on a daily basis throughout the world. We just don't get to see it. It's, this, it's the picture of the hidden places where people are still being quietly witnessed to by friends and neighbors and family. And the Holy Spirit is, in smaller numbers, still is saving people. It's not like when I was a kid, I remember my dad was in charge of like one whole section of the Oakland Coliseum when Billy Graham was in town. I don't know, 73, 74, back when the Oakland A's actually were winning championships, Rob. And um, and in 89, you're right, you're right. But I remember going to the Oakland Coliseum and being kind of in the front lip and hearing Billy Graham and then everybody being invited to come forward and hundreds of people coming down. It's not like that anymore. But I still, the vision for me is the hidden places that God is still working. And the second image I have is a pile of ashes. There's a growing ash pile of what I will call the West's eanity, insanity. And what I mean by that is eanity is Christianity that's increasingly lost Christ in favor of all the ianity stuff we've invented, of all of our great programs, our sexy programs and our sexy lights and our sexy bands and our sexy preachers and our this and that and everything and all that stuff. And it has burned down churches. It has burned down denominations and individuals leaving an ash pile of an abortive witness of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. It's like, we don't, we don't need any of that. And of also an ash pile of abused Christians rejecting Jesus. And you're like, wait a minute, Andy. I thought you just said that these are Im- images of a vision of hope. You're co- it's an ash pile. But here's what I really believe. That as scary as the growing ash pile feels, I believe that out of the ashes, I'm seeing a picture emerging of a fresh naivete and openness to the hope of Jesus that I think is going to open up new mission frontiers in the next few decades in the West. So when you get terrified and you look at the ash pile, don't be afraid. I think out of the ash, something's starting to emerge. And let's be people of hope to believe that. Jesus wants us to tell the world that he sent his son to rescue us. So let's just, even in those quiet little places right now, as the ash pile's getting bigger, we can still be part of those little quiet places moving forward, just like the first disciples, to try to be people who share the good news. Let's pray. God, I've gone on way too long, but may your spirit move in all of us, and I include myself, God. I really need your inspiration to be able to share and to speak and to love. We all need it because the world needs it. Thank you for your message to us. It got to us. Help us to be the, the beautiful feet who bring the good news to others. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.